0: PlushCare.com slash weight loss.
1: Having a public sex offender registry is a bad idea. It makes emotional sense, but it doesn't make practical sense. Enough is enough. Do we really think these people need to serve even more time? What if we had a show
2: about solutions you know a repair manual for the real world not
1: the same old left versus right i am right right. and you are wrong you're wrong
0: boring
3: Boring. (laughs)
0: yeah something new
1: yeah something new how to make the world a better place yeah how do we (laughs) fix it how do we fix it
3: So, Jim, today's show, I think, is a a tough one. It's about sex offenders, which is a difficult subject. They're rightly reviled for the depravity of their crimes... But there's a real controversy brewing over how they're treated. Yeah, specifically over the uh, the sex offender registry. You
2: know, it's one of those things that everybody. It sounds like a good idea, and everybody thinks it's a good idea. But when you start looking
3: into it, there's some real problems. And it was in response to several pretty horrific crimes that got a great deal of media coverage. Right. Right. Now, our guest says that
2: the treatment of sex offenders is really kind of out of whack.
3: And that the sex offenders registry is really counterproductive, not only not fair, but simply doesn't work.
2: Right. So our guest is Emily Horowitz. She's a sociology professor at St. Francis College in Brooklyn, a researcher and advocate in criminal justice, and an expert in wrongful conviction. Her recent book is called Protecting Our Kids, How Sex Offender Laws Are Failing.
3: So, Emily, how many people are there on the sex offenders registry in the United States right now? Over
1: 800,000. And it grows every year. And those are people who are publicly listed on the internet um, with all of their personal information, um, photographs. And these are all people who have served time and completed probation and parole.
2: So we're talking about something that lives on for people after they've been convicted, after they've paid their debt to society, but they are listed in these databases that are easy to access? And and a lot of people would argue, yeah, they should be. That's a good thing.
1: It makes emotional sense, but it doesn't make practical sense for many reasons. Um, first of all, there's no other crime where you're listed on a public registry. But the premise underlying sex offender registries is that People who commit sex crimes are different than all other criminals because they're predatory. Um, they cannot be stopped. They're uncontrollable. So they need to be listed for life. But that's not true.
3: Well, let's break down these these numbers. 800,000, you say. Now, they're 800,000 very different cases. So who are these 800,000? Well,
1: a quarter of them are people who've committed crimes as juveniles. It can include fondling, touching, can include rape, sexual assault, Um It can include violent sex crimes. But the thing you have to remember is that in the United States, we have a pretty draconian response to crime. So people serve really long sentences. And do we really think these people need to serve even more time? They're given strict sentences. The recidivism rate, that's the key issue. The recidivism rate for sex offenders is not higher than other crimes. It's much lower, in fact. Um, particularly for juvenile offenders, particularly for offenders who are publicly shamed um, and serve time.
3: But I wanted to go back to this question of the 800,000, because it strikes me that that they're often treated, at least in the public, in the same way. And some of them really are criminals, very serious criminals who should be locked up for a very long time and watched for the rest of their lives. But there are many other people who, for instance, uh, they may be 18 and they had sex with a 16-year-old. That's that's a very different kind of person and a different type of offense.
1: That's right. So statutory offenses, um, consensual sex between people who are above the age of consent and people who are low, below the age of consent are on the registry often for life. Um, and as I said, one quarter of the people are children themselves who've committed crimes as juveniles and they're particularly responsive to treatment. There's very few that are violent pedophiles, which is what the registry... And yet that's
2: our image. I that's mean, our you, image. you know, you watch Law & Order Special Victims Unit or something like that. I mean, that's the creepy older guy, you know, stealing kids from the playground. is kind of our image of who's on the registry.
1: Right. The three federal acts that created the registry and have created these draconian responses to sex offenses were named after children. Jacob Wetterling, who was abducted and killed, but... It's never been determined if it was by a sex offender or not. And In fact, his mother uh, now recognizes the registry as a mistake and has become an advocate to reform the sex offender registry because she sees how it's it's gotten out of control. The Adam Walsh Act, Adam Walsh was a little boy who was abducted. And Megan's Law, um, Megan Kanka was abducted by a sex offender who was released into her community. And... People weren't notified. So intuitively say, oh, my gosh, they should have told all her neighbors that this guy who had a history of harming children moved to the neighborhood. It seems like a really good idea. And it is a good idea in theory. But that case is so anomalous and so rare to develop policy based on it doesn't make sense. You
2: know, Glenn Reynolds, a law professor at University of Tennessee who's been on our show, he likes to say that any law that's named after a person – Is probably a bad law, you know, because it shows that there's that strong emotional component and we might be taking a genuine problem, but then creating a solution that's too broad and too indiscriminate. So I'm interested, like, how did you get started? Was there a particular case or experience that really got you focused on this particular part of criminal justice reform?
1: Yes, I came to it through uh, my friend, Debbie Nathan, who's a great journalist. And and one of the cases she told me about was a guy named Bernard Barron. He worked in a daycare and he was gay. He was an openly gay man and this was in the eighties. And it was a daycare center in a working class town. And some of the parents found out he was gay and they went to the head of the daycare and they said, you need to fire him. We don't want a gay man working in our daycare center. Um, The daycare center refused to fire him. And then uh, a few days later, they said, he was sexually abusing their son, and the daycare center then did all these terrible things that you're not supposed to do, like sending letters to parents if your child has been complaining of being touched, come see us, and, you know, uh, all these terrible things. But the homophobia and hysteria in that case really struck me as, as a grave injustice. And, and he served over two decades um, before he was exonerated, and then he, he died a few years ago, but his case was— Heartbreaking. Heartbreaking that he went to prison at 17 or 18 for two decades. um, And he was completely innocent.
3: You're you're a mother of four children. Right. Do you ever worry about about them and whether anything that you're doing makes the world less safe for them?
1: Um, I never worry about that because I do feel like partly because of my work, I, I think my kids feel comfortable talking to me and they're aware that it's not acceptable and um, I, I hope they would, they would tell me if anything happened. I mean I think there's very, very few people who are truly dangerous after they serve their time and receive treatment and those are the people you want to monitor but when you say everybody who commits any sex offense – um should be on this registry you get into a lot of trouble.
2: Now, one of the dimensions of this that's been gotten some attention lately is the what's called civil commitment. Uh after people have served their sentences, how does that work exactly?
1: Um so after people serve their sentences, in some states they can say this person should not be even released to the public, even on the registry and even subject to all these restrictions, they have to be detained indefinitely.
3: So so this is someone who's sentenced in our system to say 10 years in prison, comes out, served his time, and then is told, no, sorry, we have to detain you for an indefinite period of time.
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify.
3: and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's right. Now, I can imagine that some people listening to this are screaming right now, going, wait a minute. We've spent, like, I don't know, Nearly 10 minutes talking about the offenders and perhaps they are mistreated, dealt with unfairly. What about the victims? Um, are victims typically attacked by strangers?
1: No, almost never. Over 90% of children who are victimized are harmed by people they know, people within their family, within their community, people known to the family. It's very rare that strangers sexually abuse children in a park, in a mall and abduct them and harm them. This almost never happens. We
2: did a show recently with Lenore Skenazy, who's the free-range kids movement. She talks about this all the time, that the way that we've gotten this idea that there's these you know bad guys lurking around every playground, their image of this is shaped by the media. How does that affect it?
1: The media loves to uh, promote fear and moral panic. And I mean, we're in the midst of a sex panic that has been going on for decades now. It started uh, with the daycare center cases where people believe that... You know, that for
2: younger listeners, not everybody remembers those cases and how yeah. extreme it was. Talk a little bit about the McMartin case and some of the others. That, that was in California, right?
1: That's right. It was the longest trial in California history. Nobody was ever convicted. Um, and there was a number of these cases where there was believed to be multiple victims and multiple offenders doing group satanic ritual and abuse rich, to children.
2: Weird ritual satanic something. I mean, these elaborate, crazy stories. And yet... There was very little skepticism at first about, you know, three year old said that they flew in through the window and then did X and Y, and nobody questioned. In fact, it was like very right. incorrect. You have to, to believe the, the children,
1: right? Mm-hmm. Don't question the victim, even if a three year old changes their story nine times and they were. They were questioned improperly. There was a lot of suggestion. There
3: were a lot of leading leading questions, and the children were led to, to, to say certain things that weren't true.
1: Right. Well, we there was no awareness of how to question children about child sexual abuse. Um, and so people started believing that daycare workers wanted to be daycare workers so they could molest children, which is absurd. And, and there was um, this
3: view in the McMartin case that these daycare workers were almost part of a cult. Right. Yes. Satanic yeah. ritual mm-hmm.
1: abuse, right? Mm-hmm. That babies were murdered, that there was t- underground tunnels. Um And a few really brave people like Debbie Nathan started questioning this, but she was attacked horribly for questioning whether these kids were actually being abused.
2: So that moral panic of that era has kind of evolved now into other sorts of moral panic around sexual issues and sexual assault. That's right,
1: and there's lasting impact. Like, men don't work in daycare anymore. Men don't work in in the lower grades, in kindergarten, in first grade. There's all kinds of um, policies now, like no-touch daycare policies, which are really bad for kids, to view all men. No-touch daycare? Yeah, there's these policies where you can't, like, hug the kids, or put them on your lap, and you
3: know. and when a child is crying, that's you know yeah. that's that that would be just a normal human response. Mm-hmm. That's would right, be to, this, would be to hug that child.
1: That's right, and right. so. It's terrible that we view all adults as potential predators and all children as So potential. that can
3: lead to real emotional detachment. I mean, because that's also a problem right. with young and children. and kids are
1: scared, and parents are scared, and and it's, and it's, it's a very bad situation.
2: Now, our show is about solutions, and uh, Emily, you've come in with some very concrete, very specific solutions to the problem, and um, well, let's talk about that a little bit. Assuming people agree that there's an issue here, and maybe not everybody does, but What are your solutions to this?
1: Um, I think that having a public sex offender registry is a bad idea. Sex offenders have very, very low recidivism rates for many reasons. Treatment works. The shame of being arrested works. You age out of crime. There's many, many reasons. Um, And they destroy families, and we don't have them for any other crime.
3: You mentioned shaming on, on sex offender registries. Isn't that a major argument in favor of them, shaming?
1: The public shaming? Yes, I mean, the
3: public I, shaming.
1: I think public shaming is a terrible thing. But I think doesn't being,
3: public shaming lead to fewer crimes?
1: Um, I think being arrested for a sex offense is a form of public shaming. I think that serving time in prison for a sex offense is a form of public shaming. And being on probation or parole as a sex offender is a form of public shaming. So you, whenever you're caught, public shaming occurs. So so
2: your first solution is basically we should just get rid of or profoundly modify the, the uh, sex offenders registry. That's right. And so
1: in California what they did is they had to get rid of this because they recognized it was a public safety threat to have tons of homeless sex offenders. And it also was bad for society to have so much more homelessness as a result of a law that wasn't um, decreasing crime or – protecting children in any way. The thing is we know child sexual abuse is very complicated and it happens most often within the family and within um, among people known to the children. So these laws are totally ineffective. Most sex offenders, it's their first offense. So you also, the sex offender registry doesn't monitor people who are not already convicted.
3: So let's get to the second uh, solution that you have on on your list of four, and that is to divert resources away from sex offender registries uh, because they are expensive. Right, and monitoring, yeah. And and use that money instead for what?
1: Um, Mental health and social services, education. I mean, the best way to prevent child sexual abuse is to educate and give kids ways to report it that are... Um, helpful. And one other thing is that in many cases, because sex offenders are known to the children and known to the family, because the response is so extraordinary and so draconian, it actually prevents people from reporting it. Um, And there's these mandatory reporting laws. If you abuse a child and you're troubled by it, you can't tell your therapist because you'll be reported. If a child is abused, they're aware that this person will be publicly shamed Flogged and you know punished for life. Um, the case of Josh Duger. The Duger family has a reality show. Um, that case really compelled me. He had he had touched four or five of his sisters inappropriately. And this is very common.
3: When he was a child. When
1: he was a child himself. He was a teenager and they were younger. Um, and I, I interviewed a number of people who had inappropriately touched siblings or step-siblings. Um, it's it's common. It's uncomfortable to talk Le- about. Lena
2: Dunham wrote about it in her book. That's
1: right. Um, but the parents kind of dealt with it within their family. They didn't go to the police. And they lost their show on TLC and they were publicly humiliated. you know, And I think that what compelled me about the story is that they didn't really have much choice because I interviewed a number of kids whose parents had gone to the police or gone to therapists, and their kids um, had been taken away from them. Um, Josh Gravins, who I interview in my book, um, is a very outspoken person about his experience. He inappropriately touched his sister when he was 13, um, and he was put in juvenile prison for three years and he's in his thirties, and he 's still on the public registry
3: so th- those cases, I guess speak to the third solution on your list, which is educating the public about the real causes of sexual abuse, and also talking about just how incredibly complicated this this field is
1: so in in cases of like these these sibling cases, I mean think if you're the parent, you love both the siblings, you want to protect the sibling who's the victim, and you want to punish the sibling who perpetrated the crime. But at the same time, you don't want your family totally destroyed. You don't want your, the child who who did that to um, be punished forever. And so Josh Gravins has become this outspoken advocate because he's still on the, the registry and he's still dealing with the effects. Most people who are rearrested on the registry is for violating the terms of the registry, not another sex offense. So he moved recently and didn't update his address, during the right time period, and now he's facing uh, jail again. Um, and he's never reoffended.
2: Right. I mean, what other crime that somebody would commit when they're 13 carries that kind of lifelong consequence? And isn't this partly related to this idea that was promoted by some psychologists that this is, you know, it's almost like being a serial killer or something. This is some deep-seated compulsion that's going to be lifelong, and these people are always going to be be a threat right.
1: that's right that's right and actually um there was a an article just published a few days ago about how in many in many um court decisions they use bad data and junk science by saying sex offenders have frighteningly high rates of reoffense. this isn't true there's no research or data that shows that
3: when you say very low what do you mean
1: um it, it ranges from some as low as three percent some up to Ten or fifteen percent, and it differs by type of offense and age of offender. But uh, it's very, very low compared to every other crime.
3: Now we've been talking about the importance of educating the public and educating children and helping helping families. What about sex offenders themselves? There's a program called Circles of Support and Accountability. Are there things that can be done apart from just locking sex offenders up or throwing them onto a sex offenders registry that will help them? not just in terms of, of support, but just help them with understanding what, what That's they've That's right. Done. I
1: mean, there's 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 a lot of evidence that sex offender treatment is effective. It's not just the public shaming of going to prison and everything else, um, but treatment works, being aware that, that you're harming children works. Um, sex offender treatment is effective, according to many studies. So there's lots of things you can do um, to decrease recidivism even lower. But I think for all crimes, the best way to decrease recidivism and prevent crimes is to help people who've served their time rebuild their lives because you're much less likely to reoffend if you have a stable job, if you have a stable home. If you're dealing with public shaming every single day, um, it's really hard.
2: So, so the registry makes everything else about this problem worse rather than better.
1: Far worse, far worse. So,
3: education, educating the public about child sexual abuse, really important subject. What are the causes? of child sexual abuse. I, mean,
1: I think what's more important than trying to figure out the causes is to educate people and make it clear it's not acceptable that it happens. I think one of the things that related to the decline in sexual abuse that that happened in the early 90s was that in the 70s and 80s it became publicized. People were open about it. People used to not talk about it. It was hidden. Um, it was a shameful thing. It was not recognized. If children did report it, they'd say don't don't report it. Like you're going to ruin the family. Don't talk about it. Um, so talking about it and making it public and shedding light on it and making it clear it's not acceptable. That children should say no and that adults should not do this. That's one of the key ways to prevent it.
3: So the one size fits all approach clearly doesn't work. I think we've established that. Emily Horowitz, sociology professor, thanks very much. So Jim, this is a very tangled, complicated topic, but as so often happens with the way these things are debated, I'm concerned about both sides of the argument talking past each other The victims, their lives have been ruined in many cases by sex offenders, and I feel that that needs to be a very important focus of of any debate. If the sex offender registry leads to more safety, then maybe it's not such a bad thing. If, on the other hand, it leads to these offenders being so isolated from society that they become even worse as people, then it is counterproductive.
2: Right. And one thing that, you know, she points out in her work is that there isn't that much evidence that these are any that these registries really do prevent future crimes. And now it's probably a hard thing to measure precisely. And I can certainly understand parents and, and others who just want that added knowledge. They just want to know, they, and they feel they have a right to know. Those are strong arguments. Um, but I think that where I'm, um, I'm most persuaded is the huge number of people who are on these registries who, who are not the clear-cut predator type. Right. They've done something wrong. I mean, I think she's honest that these are real crimes and people need to be they need to go to jail for these things, you know, and and they should. But are we actually succeeding in protecting future victims with this whole elaborate registry thing? I'm pretty convinced it's not doing much to help those. victims.
3: Right. As long as we're. Talking in our conversation about victims, I'm comfortable with that. And I agree with you. The one-size-fits-all nature of the sex offenders registry, 800,000 people, some, many, who committed fairly minor crimes when they were children being thrown onto this and lumped together with serial rapists. There's a real problem there. Yeah, and I think in our in our popular culture, there's a
2: strong desire to promote this idea of this kind of super predator. And um, th- there's been research saying that, you know, campus rape cases are these serial rapists. And then it turns out that research really w- was not germane to that question at all. There's an image in, uh, in a lot of popular culture from, you know, Law and Order and other shows that there's these people lurking around that are going to commit these crimes again and again. In the cases where that's true, we, we have to, you know, do everything we can to isolate those people. But that's probably not as much the norm as we all tend to believe. And there is this,
3: as you mentioned to me, gleeful public shaming of people who are critical of the way society is treating sex offenders.
2: I mean, any legislator who is willing to even look at at
3: reforming these has got a lot of guts. We want to leave our listeners with a sense of fixes, of solutions, so let's walk through them, Jim. Emily says get rid of the sex offenders registry. Right, I and mean, her argument is that it's expensive, it gives a false sense
2: of security. And and it prevents people from reentering society uh, and in ways that maybe make the problem worse rather than
3: better. I certainly agree that it needs to be cut back. I'm not sure I agree that getting rid of it completely is a good idea. Now, her
2: second uh, suggestion is to divert resources away from the registry and you know monitoring the sex offenders and into mental health and other services that can help reintegrate people into society. And, and, I, and what was interesting to me, and I think a, a positive thing, is how successful some of this intervention is and how low the rate of recidivism is with this population. Yeah,
3: and just the vast cost of that sexual offenders registry using some of that money in, in this way, I think, is a constructive idea. Right. And then her third
2: idea, which is pretty basic, just to educate the public— and she thinks that a lot of the decline in in sex offenses has related to just growing awareness you know there's been a cultural shift and I think a really healthy one uh, just in in my lifetime on how people view these issues and I think and, and that they can talk about these right things. and
3: we've got to continue that yeah I agree and for reforming the criminal justice response to sex offenders uh, getting rid of the one-size-fits-all approach I agree with her I also think that that civil commitment this idea That once you've served, say, 10 years in prison for a sexual offense, all of a sudden somebody comes to you and goes, no, sorry, that's not enough. You need to spend another indefinite amount of time behind bars or in in a confined facility. That's not. That's wrong. I mean, at great expense and
2: with no clear kind of uh, legal rules around around how long you're going to stay in or how or what you need to do to to get out. So we are starting to see a little bit of a wave of reform and uh, and a really important case, the Jessica's Law in California. wasn't repealed, but it was rolled back. And specifically, they were taking offenders, maybe someone whose victim was an adult, and they were saying, oh, you can't live within this distance of a school, assuming they were some kind of pedophile or predator. And that was Jessica's law. That was Jessica's law. So they scaled that back. I think the legislators who who supported that were pretty gutsy. And I think that's we need to make smart distinctions. We we don't need a one-size-fits-all solution. At the same time, I don't think we're, we're wrong or have
3: been wrong to try to protect kids. Well, no one can disagree with that, Jim. How do we fix it? Our show is produced by Davies Content. We make creative content for companies and nonprofits. Our producer, as always, Miranda Schaefer. And our engineer, Denise Barberita, at Mono Lisa Studios. And the wonderful music you're now listening to is by our composer, Lou Stravinsky.
2: Uh, Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.
0: Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes